Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. As you've been hearing in the news, some hopeful news coming out of the province. The new numbers have been released on the pandemic modeling, and we are being told that what we are doing appears to be working when it comes to flattening the curve in BC. We have a lot of different COVID-19 related topics to get to, but let's dive right into this one because Daniel Coombs has joined us again. He's been on the program a couple of times before talking about this. He's a UBC professor with expertise in mathematical models when it comes to pandemic growth and control. Daniel, thanks so much for being back on the show today. Great, thank you. What do you take from the numbers that were released today? Yeah, I don't think, uh, from my perspective, there were big surprises on, on purely on the numbers. I think we've been seeing the um, epidemic uh, curve in terms of ICU admissions, hospitalizations, and even just um, diagnoses uh, leveling off. I think we know that the curve has been flattening over the past couple of weeks. I think it's uh, it was great to see Dr. Henry presenting all this information in one place, and I'm, I'm still kind of digesting it myself, having just watched it. Uh, but I felt like what was perhaps the most interesting part was when she moved on at the end towards uh, looking forward to some relaxation of the physical distancing measures that we have in the province. And, and are you able to look at the models, not you personally, but do, do we look at these then and when we think of that relaxation, obviously it depends what happens within the next few weeks and, and if this trend continues, uh, but to get, to get a better idea on when exactly we might see that relaxation of some of the, the restrictions? Yeah, so this, this is a really interesting question. It's something I've been thinking about an awful lot over the past few days. Actually, even the past few weeks. Um, so there, there are a few studies coming out that are projection studies from, from different places around the world. Uh, the, perhaps the most interesting one that I've read uh, was looking at the situation in Paris, in France. Um, and they were trying to assess what kind of social distancing uh, and other measures they would need to keep in place for the, for the months going forward while simultaneously not overwhelming their hospital capacity. And what I found really striking was that, that they were finding that it was very important um, to, to be very conservative as you relax measures, uh, relax slowly. Um, they didn't explicitly say this, but kind of see how it's going and then maybe every month or so introduce some, some new relaxations. Um, they found that, that you know, obviously reopening um, everything, going back to how we were, or how they were in, in say, in the fall, would, would just result in the, the huge epidemic that we've managed to avoid so far in, in British Columbia uh, and, and also in Paris. Um, and I, I, I think that, that, that I, I found it very sobering just to read through what they've done very carefully with the different numbers and looking at the proportions of people in different age groups in, in, in Paris, which probably isn't so different than what we have here in B.C., um, and and see that that really you have to be a, you have to take a very conservative approach to uh, to uh, reopening at this point. And looking at uh, a couple of the slides, there's one that shows the number of confirmed cases, and you can see kind of where it peaks. But it also has the two dates: the March 16th, where the lab testing criteria changed, and then where it changed again on the 9th. Does it matter, or how much do we need to to break to to keep that in mind that the testing itself changed on those two dates? 
Yeah, um, I will tell you that when the numbers come out every day, uh, the numbers I really look to first are the um, change in the number of people who are hospitalized and the ICU numbers, um, I, because those, those are not subject to questions around who's being tested. So I look at those numbers first, then I go and, and look at the testing numbers. Um, so so, so I, I find... I think that there's always going to be a question around how many cases are being detected out of how many cases are actually out there, um, and that's actually something that it would be nice. It would be nice to have have a good estimate of that, but obviously it's it's uh, very difficult to to make that estimate. And in the one slide, when we talk then about people currently in critical care and that number as of April 14th, 58, how important is it though to look at that number of 58 and compare it to how many have been in critical care? Yeah, so the question there is how long are people spending in critical care uh, on average? And I think that varies quite a lot. Uh, I think there are, there are some people who are spending, you know, uh, some number of weeks in critical care. And so that, that critical care number is still somewhat reflecting, you know, the, the trajectory of the epidemic from a few weeks ago as people were entering into critical care and, and haven't actually left. Uh, on the other hand, I'm sure there are some people who go into critical care and come out again within a, within a few days. It would just depend on the individual patients. Uh, these, these are all trailing indicators of where the epidemic is, is going. Uh, and the critical care one is probably, you know, the, the longest trailing in the indicator. It's, it's showing us the furthest back in time of, of how people were getting infected. But I still feel like the critical care and the hospitalization are, are, are the numbers that I, that I, I really look at on a day-to-day basis. And that number two uh, is uh, 349 people ever hospitalized. So that's the number of people that have been in hospital at at one point. Uh, 68 is the median age of people ever hospitalized. How important are those numbers? Yeah, that that just reminds me of another thing, which is which is that when we look at those hospitalization and critical care numbers, and then we start to think also about the death numbers. uh, a, a large number of deaths in BC have, have sadly been among people who, who are in um, long-term care. Um, we, we all know that. But in many cases, the, um, those people don't move from the long-term care facility into the hospital. So a lot of the deaths are actually not coming from the uh, critical care facilities, but they're actually happening in, in the long-term care facilities for elderly people. Right. So, and, and, that, right, and that's a, an interesting point because I think people would equate hospitalization with deaths, but you're right. If you're in a long-term care facility and you pass away there, then you're not counted in that number. That, that's right. You're counted. So, so we, we have to be a little bit careful when we start to compare the different numbers just to remember what the, what the distinctions between them are. Um, but, but just back to your question, yeah, it, it, it is, you know, our, our numbers, the median age at death is, is well over 80 um, the median age of people hospitalized is well over 60, and I, I think this is this is you know reflecting the experience uh, with the disease which has been seen around the world uh, through this epidemic. And we will when we look at the the cumulative diagnosed cases, that slide shows BC just slightly above the line of South Korea, quite well below, below the line of Canada. Uh, is that where we get this kind of message of hope and message that what we're doing is working? Yeah, basically, I, I do. I do caution people a little bit that that plot is is produced on a on a per capita basis, which makes it a little bit hard to to distinguish, you know, um, between places with different um, populations. So, if this was not done on a per capita basis, then obviously Quebec and Ontario have a much larger population than us, and we would actually see their plots 
uh, their lines deviating further from the British Columbia line, which actually indicates that our province is, is having it just you know, even easier uh, than, than those provinces are, even, even than you might think based on the per capita plot. Right. Uh, and how important is it, do you think, or is it helpful when we look at the modeling and look at what we would be seeing if we weren't taking any measures? Uh, I, think, I think it's important to remember what would have happened if we hadn't taken the measures, that very likely we would have seen the, the Northern Italy scenario play out uh, in Canada. Um, but going forward, you know, the baseline is we've taken these measures, we're at where we're at, and we need to try to make predictions um, going forward. Um, I guess the, the main point being that if we went back to having no restrictions, we could reasonably expect, you know, a, um, a very large epidemic on our hands within, you know, um, two or three weeks. And, and just one final question. Given in one of the slides in the presentation today, it says that, that, that using reference points like Italy or Hubei province is now less important. Why is that, that we can not look at those as much and maybe focus more on the BC numbers? Well, we have more numbers, for one thing. We, we started our epidemic behind, obviously, several months behind Hubei province um, and several weeks behind uh, Italy. So, so we actually have more numbers and we've been able to grow our confidence um, in, in, in our understanding of how the epidemic is playing out in B.C. Uh, just another point, I believe the Chinese government has revised the Hubei death numbers upwards by uh, quite a large amount as of today. By, um, yeah, so, about 50 percent, yeah. I think. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so the numbers that, that are being compared to for Hubei and B.C. are, you know, the, the, the comparison there is sort of getting in, that makes the comparison uh, even less relevant. All right. We will leave it there. Daniel Coombs, thank you so much once again for your time. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you.